DJ and PK brought to you by Live Nation. Listen to the big show every day, July 28th through August 1st, for your chance to win tickets to see your favorite artist at Yasana Amphitheater. We'll be giving away one pair of tickets every day to Kiss 311, Lady A, and Alanis Morissette. And here's the best part. You get to pick which concert you want to attend. Get your tickets at LiveNation.com. Brought to you by Live Nation. So the NBA draft is in the books. The Jazz trade the 30th pick, as many people expected. They traded for the 40th pick. Not so many people expected that. They ended up picking up Jared Butler. Can play either guard spot, 6'4 guy, three years of college ball. Originally was going to go to Alabama. And ended up bailing out before he ever got started and headed over to Baylor. Most outstanding player, NCAA Final Four. Big part of their championship run, obviously. Can play either guard spot. Has, uh, has ability to uh, run the pick and roll, pass the ball. Maybe a little, little loose with the ball. Maybe turns it over a little too much. Can catch and shoot also. So, he's got some possibilities. But he will be a rookie, and the Jazz will need him in the playoffs. It's all about the playoffs now for the Jazz. They've established themselves as the best team in the regular season. So now how far can you go in the playoffs, regardless of whether you're a one-seed or a two-seed or whatever? He did have health issues, and that is why he was available at the 40th pick. Got referred to a panel of three doctors, reportedly about a heart condition, and the league picks a doctor, and the Players Association picks a doctor, and the doctors pick a third doctor, and they go over everything and decide if you can play. And they decided he could. But the damage had already been done to his draft stock. Uh, the projections I saw had him initially that he was going to be middle of the first round. And, of course, that's way early stuff. So you've got to do the workouts and you've got to do all the interviews and guys can slide to 20 or they can climb to number 7 or whatever. I don't know where he would have gone in there. We'll never know because once the health stuff was on the board, it's NBA teams were just backing away left and right. And that's why he slides to 40 and why the Jazz get him. And Justin Zanuck, and we played it earlier this morning, he met with the media last night at midnight, so you may not have seen all the quotes and the writers haven't had time to get them out and all that. But he was asked specifically, is this the guy you wanted at 30 but you knew you can get him at 40 and is that why you traded back? Justin didn't want to go there. I think we could guess and assume the answer is yes, but nothing he was willing to confirm. But in any case, that's who they get at 40. They also got two other second-round picks uh, they'll be in other years, so they're future second rounders out there. How much do they think Butler can play year one, and how much is he viewed as a project? And I think we'll know that if Conley resigns, do they bring in a veteran point guard or not? Because I don't think anybody wants to see Joe play that many minutes as a primary ball handler, and he might not have to because they might be healthier this year. But I think if they resign Conley, and if they're going to end up playing a full 82 games, Conley's got to be looked at as a 50- or 60-game guy. Either the hamstrings will be a problem again and he'll miss games, or he'll be sitting out back-to-backs and other select games to protect his hamstrings. So either way, I don't know what the number would be, but I, I can't see why you pick a number bigger than 60. And if some of you want to say, oh, it'll be 50, okay, maybe. So I think they're going to need another point guard. And do they want to count on Jared Butler to be that? Or do they want to go out and find a veteran at the minimum? We're going to find out what they really think of Butler when we see that. And they also got asked, is Butler going to be in the Summer League? The Salt Lake version, before they go to Vegas, the Salt Lake version is August 3rd, 4th, and 6th. 
And Justin didn't want to commit to him being in uniform. Seemed like the answer was definitely maybe. He'll be there and be with the team, but will he be playing? Will they still be working some stuff out? Remains to be seen. There's some kind of question marks looming there. So that's the draft. Seems like good value. A guy who probably should have been pick 15, give or take a few spots, and you get him at 40. Now, the rest of the league was still shying away from him. Picks 35, 36, 37, 38. So there's got to be some element of risk there. And if he doesn't play in the summer leagues, then the eyebrows are raised because why wouldn't you want your rookie playing in the summer league? You know, how healthy is he? None of us really get to know that. But as PK likes to say, it will all be obvious pretty quickly. Can he play August 3rd, 4th, and 6th? What's going on? Can he play in Vegas after that? The other thing the Jazz have done, the news breaking overnight, and many of you aren't happy about it, the Jazz are trading Derek Favors. I don't think this is a surprise. Maybe Oklahoma City's a surprise. There were all kinds of rumors out there about a possible trade to Sacramento. But for most of you, it doesn't really matter where he's going. You like Derek Favors, and you're sorry he's gone. And I covered this a little earlier in the show, but he makes a lot of money. He makes the kind of money that you get if you're playing 27, 30, 32 minutes a night. Starter-type minutes, whether you start or whether you come off the bench. He's making money very similar to, I mean, he's not making the Mitchell Gobert. He's not even really making the bogey money. You know, bogey's uh, what, almost $18 million last year and will be almost $19 million this coming year. He's not in that neighborhood. He's not one of your big three. But he's making the same kind of money the Clarkson, Ingles, and O'Neal are making. Royce O'Neal is going to make 8.7 next year. Jordan Clarkson's money jumps to 12.4. Joe goes up to 14. Derek will be at 9.7. So you got four guys between 9 and $14 million. But Royce starts full-time. Joe started, really split it last year, started half the time, came off the bench half the time. And Jordan Clarkson didn't start. He came off the bench. But all those guys are playing 25-plus minutes, depending on the night and the game and the way it's going. And some nights are playing 30 or 35. So they're, they're guys who are playing big minutes, carrying a big chunk of the load. Derek wasn't playing that many minutes. And the bench wasn't even necessarily dominating the minutes. Now, Josh tweets at us, David, the second unit, the year he was gone, was downright pathetic. He made a difference. Uh, I agree. The second unit was terrible. And he did, he did make it better. I'll absolutely give you that. Now, I think acquiring Jordan Clarkson mid-year really made it better. Uh, But the other problem with Derek is he's got physical issues. He's not healthy. He's not as healthy as he was three or four years ago. And at that point, he's not as healthy as he was six or eight years ago. It's just been trending poorly. He's been sitting on the bench um, with a heat pack on his back trying to stay loose. And he's said point blank in interviews when he's asked about it, well, some nights it just feels better than others. I just I feel looser and I'm more able to move. And some nights he looks explosive, and some nights he's playing old man basketball down at the gym, and he's underneath the rim flipping shots up. Other nights he's on top of the rim throwing it down, and that's the Derek Favors you know and love. And I get that. But he's 30 now, and he's going to turn 31 coming up here, and that is going to get worse, not better. He's not going to get healthier. The, the physical issues have been a problem, and I don't think they're getting better. So combination of the money, a combination of they need more production, 
and a combination of his physical issues, and I think it was a pretty clear-cut decision for them. They need to use that money on somebody else because they have to be better so they don't get knocked out in the second round of the playoffs. They need to find people who are going to be difference makers in the postseason. And with Rudy playing big minutes in the best of times, Favors is playing 12 to 15 minutes. And as you've seen with small ball, maybe the Jazz need a different kind of player to back up Rudy. And Favors isn't that guy. So I think it was really a pretty clear-cut decision for the front office. And if you say you like him, I get it. And if you say he's one of your favorite players, I get it. But there's no room for emotion and warm, fluffy feelings. It's just cold, hard math. How much money is he making? How much production is he getting? Is he the matchup the Jazz need in the second round of the playoffs if they get to the third round and get to a conference final? Is he what they need? And I think they're going to go spend that money on somebody else. Who? That's what we find out in the coming days. We played Justin Zanuck earlier this morning. If you missed it, he'll get replayed later in the day. Yach, maybe we should replay it later in the day. What about that? What about that, Yach? I can do that. All right. Because I'm still currently batting. What am I batting? Zero. Well, I have one guest. So. Oh, I meant on NBA writers. On NBA writers. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, You're over on NBA writers this morning. And I get they were all up till midnight and then they were writing till 1 a.m. And like, hey, would you like the opportunity to talk to DJ at 7.45 in the morning when you've been asleep for four and a half hours? Probably not their go-to answer. Probably not. Love to. So let's replay Justin Zanuck at 9 then, unless you get a bigger name on another line. And we'll let you hear Justin Zanuck. Also, if you're not going to be available at 9, we already played it in the 6 o'clock hour, so you just find the first hour of our show at 1280thezone.com, and you hear Justin Zanuck. He was in the third segment of the first hour. And we'll put him in the first segment of the 9 o'clock hour. So everything's out there, available on podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever. Whatever your go-to is, it's out there. Or you can just go to 1280thezone.com, anything you miss all day long. The first question to Justin is, what about Derek Favors? <laughs> uh, guys, we've got new rules in the NBA, and I, I can't talk about any trades that may or may not be happening that haven't been announced and finalized. We've got to wait for the new NBA year. So that was the end of that. He shut that down right out of the gate. And we're done. But then this morning the, the trade went out. But you've got to wait for the new year, which I think kicks in August 1. It's weird. All the dates are different with the season being later. You had everything nailed down before. But I think they just moved it one month. We're only one year away from getting back to that. I look forward to that. I don't want to have to learn new information. I'm with you. It hurts my head. I've been a proponent for the NBA to start on Christmas, but... You're over that now, aren't you? Having experienced it, it's just a weird, weird deal. Not so much. It it does help with the start of the season in football, but it messes with the end of the season. That's what I was going to say. And I'd rather that the start of the season be a little jacked up than the end of the season jacked up. Yeah, you got it. And I'd be okay if they shortened the season, but that means they all have to take less money. That means the owners get less money, the GMs get less money, the coaches get less money, and the players get less money. So now you can imagine what kind of enthusiasm and momentum there is for this in the NBA. Yep. Not really. Not happening. Yeah, but haven't experienced it. I was okay. We saw that. We saw it play out. But let's go back to the normal setup. We're going to get another year of complaining. We're, that's going to happen. We're going to get another year of complaining because it's going to be a short off season for the teams that got to the conference final and the final. It's going to be a super short off season. The Jazz. Yeah, if you're a second round team, which the Jazz are, the the four teams that go out in the second round, that's the equivalent of going to the NBA Finals. So they get a shorter off season, but not dramatically so. 
But if you played until mid-July, and the season's going to open in mid-October, you're looking at three months, and you're going to spend one of those three months in camp. And for the guys who played in the Olympic, now all of a sudden you get why some of the guys didn't want to play in the Olympics. It really does make sense. And are the men going to make it through? They got a game this weekend, and it's the Czech Republic. This is low-end European team. They ought to be able to handle this. If they can't handle this, the red flags are massive. Yeah, if you can't beat Thomas Santoransky and whoever else is right. playing for the Czech yeah. Republic. This is, um, of the four games, le- uh, Iran, the one they just won by 50, that was the easiest game they were going to have in the whole tournament. And it was easy. This is the next easiest game. And then it's on. So if they win, it's nothing to get excited about. If they struggle or lose, you're worried and shrugging your shoulders. They ought to, that'll roll through this. And then it's into the medal round, and then it gets nervy. But just because it's nervy doesn't mean you can't win. It's not impossible to win a gold. I'm not completely throwing up my hands. I'm worried. I'm concerned. I have been since the first time I saw them play. What are they now? They played six games and kept scoring all of them, right? And they're 3-3. Three and three. So, Are they looking a little better? Yes. And the guys who are coming over from the NBA Finals, get past the, uh, the jet lag and the travel and all that stuff, and maybe you can help a little more. Still not much familiarity, but... Hey, the U.S. Women's Soccer found a, team, found a way to grind it out. They won their quarterfinal. They needed penalties. They had a couple goals disallowed for being offside. Apparently, they have more goals disallowed than anyone else in the tournament. Are you aware of the offside rule? But they won on penalties, so they, they're on to the semis. We'll see what the guys do and how they set themselves up. We'll know the seeding for the, the tournament after this weekend. Yak, what would you like me to read? Let's give away Summer League tickets. Ooh. All right. NBA action is back August 3rd, 4th, and 6th. Salt Lake City Summer League returns to Vivint Arena. Lower Bowl tickets start at just $12 to see the Jazz, the Spurs, and the Grizzlies compete. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, that's only three teams. Yeah, it's a new game. They've got three baskets. The floor is set up as a triangle. They're trying out new rules. It's going to be five on five on five. It's going to be crazy. You're going to love it. Or more likely, the Jazz are going to have two teams. What are they, a blue team and a blue white team? and the white team. Blue team and the white team. Visit slcsummerleague.com. Lock down your seats today. Think about that, though. 15 players, three hoops. Think about it. It could work. Be total chaos. August 3rd, 4th, and 6th. That is next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. A week from tonight, it'll all be over. They'll be off to Vegas. And is Butler going to play in that? How's that going to work out? I look forward to hearing about that next week. All right, DJ and PK, coming up next, I look forward to hearing some dirt from a guy who was the head of compliance in the Pac-12, former BYU basketball assistant coach Ron Barker is going to join us next. By the way, the detail I left out, it's Caller 12, 855-340-ZONE. Caller 12, 855-340-ZONE. Call now, win some summer league tickets. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU basketball assistant coach, joins us next. Stay with us. The Big Show. The Big Show. With Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. Former BYU athletic director Rondo Felberg. I'm sure you found me a decade ago saying this was going to continue to evolve until we get to a point of natural stability. I still believe that a football-centric organization that has four 16-team leagues that include conference-based rivalries that lead you up to a conference playoff and then to a national playoff. And that's what the SEC's just done. I fault the Big 12 for not having done anything when they had the chance nearly a decade ago to actually be ahead of the curve on this, and they didn't. 
Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7. Presented by Big O' Tires. The team you trust. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Brought to you by Davis Vision. Davis Vision loves teachers. If you're a teacher who needs LASIK, Davis Vision wants to give back. Schedule a free consultation appointment. Inquire about additional savings to their summer sale price. Call them today at 801-253-3080 or check them out at davisvisionmd.com. Time now to talk college sports with Ron Barker. Ron Barker joined the Pac-10 as an assistant commissioner for governance and enforcement in October of 2001 and was promoted to associate commissioner in February of 2006. We're going to talk with him as he joins us right now on the Smart Rain guest line. July is considered Smart Irrigation Month. To celebrate Best of State Award winner, Smart Rain is giving away free smart controllers to commercial properties until the end of July. Hosting costs not included. Visit SmartRain.net or call 877-346-3333 for more information. Ron, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. So, Ron, you are a former BYU assistant basketball coach under Roger Reed, and then you eventually graduated to cracking skulls in the Pac-10. I'm sorry, did I embellish that too much? No, that's pretty much what I did. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right, so uh, I think a lot of people driving around, you know, have heard stories about how much cheating is going on. And as a longtime member of the media, I have heard spectacular stories. And I will say, when is the last year that you were involved in the uh, con- conference governance? So I left the Pac-12 in October of this past year, October 2020. So I was there for 19 years, and I was involved in everything that went on during that time. The most, some of the most recent stuff. There's still an ongoing FBI men's basketball investigation involving about 20 schools, and I was in the middle of that. And, I don't know why it's taking the NCAA lot so long, but it does sometimes, and this one's taking forever. Okay, so you basically stole 90% of my question. You're a BYU guy, and I'm not, so I was going to say, why does it take the NBA so bleeping, or the NBA, the NCA so bleeping long? But can you explain to people why, if there's FBI wiretaps, we're sitting around a couple years later and nothing's happened to some of these schools? Yeah, so anytime law enforcement gets involved, it just extends the process. The NCAA usually takes a wait and, and wait for the law enforcement to get done before they'll move on it. So, you know, this one's taking forever. The the varsity uh, Blues case where the parents were driving uh, coaches and making them look like they were athletes so they could get their kids into schools, that's still ongoing with the NCAA as well, too, as well, even though some of the parents have served prison time and been out of prison for a while. So it just takes a while. If it doesn't involve the, uh, law enforcement, then you can get it done more more quickly. But even then, it'll still take up to a year. The, the Reggie Bush UFC case that I worked on took four years, and even to this day, they don't know for sure. They people don't know what actually happened in that one. Okay. Side note on the Reggie Bush deal. So his parents got a new home in Spring Valley. This will shock you, but I didn't actually grow up in San Diego. I grew up in the suburb of Spring Valley. And I lived on the western edge by Sweetwater Lake when I was in elementary school. And then in junior high and high school, between 7th and 8th grade, we moved out to kind of the eastern edge, Steel Canyon, where that new high school is out there. For the life of me, when you're Reggie Bush, 
How do you not end up with a house in La Jolla? What do you do with a house in Spring Valley? Can you shed any light on what happened there? Because I've lived in Spring Valley. You're Reggie Bush. Yeah, so this is a perfect example. Since you're from there, I'm from Orange County, California. Uh-huh. At the time, everyone kept making a big deal about, oh, he's living in a three-quarter of a million-dollar house. They didn't get the house. They just lived there for free for a year. So they didn't get the house, they, but they lived there. But I kept telling the NCA people, look, three-quarters of a million dollars in San Diego isn't the same as three-quarters of a million dollars in Indianapolis. And that took a long time for them to get that through their heads. And I said, go out to San Diego and look at the house, and you'll see what we're talking about. But in the Reggie Bush case, the, Reggie Bush's stepdad was going to start a sports marketing firm with a guy named uh, – they're not even going to names, but they're with the guy who's well known, and Reggie Bush didn't know they were doing it, and so the the NCAA kept trying to link it to USC, saying USC is involved in this, and every time they tried to tie it to Pete Carroll, they struck out. So I actually sat between Pete Carroll and Lane Kiffin at the hearing, and they kept trying to figure out how is USC involved in this, and they never really tied it much to USC except for a couple of phone calls between an assistant coach and the guy who was doing this with Reggie Bush's stepdad, and. In some of the interviews we found out, we found out why some of those phone calls were going on. So I'm not an apologist for USC by any means. I've worked at the Pac-12 or 11 schools, wanted to see them go down. But at the, that was one of probably one of the biggest miscarriages of justice for actually what USC was involved in doing. So I think people assume that over the years USC has cheated a lot. But I think people assume that in the last 10 to 15 years – Oregon's been doing their fair cheating, and nothing worse than the Will Willie Lyles, that lame explanation, I didn't know who you were talking about. Oh, please. So how guilty is Oregon of using middlemen and runners to get athletes, and is UCLA not doing that? And is that the biggest difference between how much Chip Kelly won in Oregon and how much he isn't winning at UCLA? No, I think the big thing with the the Oregon case at the time with Willie Lyles was Everybody was doing that with what Oregon was doing. Oregon got caught. I used to laugh and say at the Pac-12, you know, there, some of our schools are doing what everybody's doing. We're just not as good at it. And so when Oregon got caught doing something that probably 70% of the schools were doing at the time, it was just another case of, okay, so the, you need to get better at how you do this, which I shouldn't say that. But there, there are things going on that everybody does. It's like speeding on the freeway. That's the example I used to use. You're driving on the California freeways. Hardly anybody's going 65, and if a policeman pulls you over and you're going 75, you can't say, well, look, everybody's doing it. You're the one who got caught. And so that's what happens a lot in college sports is somebody gets caught for doing something that everybody's doing. Um, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to do now, I left. I wasn't able to talk about my cases. wasn't able to talk about what I was doing. And so for 20 years, I sat and worked, and people would come up to me, my friends who knew what I was doing, and say, you know, tell me what's going on here, and I couldn't. So the stories that are out there, people don't have a, a kind of – you kind of get the, uh, the subterfuge a little bit, and the, the media covers a little bit on the top, and then it's forgotten. So people don't really know the details of what's going on. So what I'm trying to do now is write fictional books based on actual cases. So the first one I wrote is called The Reluctant Players, and it's on Amazon. It's, it's about a junior college basketball coach who basically taught, taught his two-star players how to cheat on a math class, a correspondence math class, and then once they did and were successful in it, he then blackmailed them and said, if you don't go to this Division One school that I'm going to get hired at, I'm going to expose you. And, and that, that happened? Kind of that goes on. And that yeah, happened? That happened. Actually, true case, yes. Tell us which league. I'm not going to tell you. I'm oh, not come gonna on. Because one of the purposes for me is I don't want to expose people that have gone through things 20 years ago. If someone's guilty, 
you know, you can go and read about, but all the innocent people that got caught up in it, the two players in this, they cheated on a math class, which isn't great, but then they got blackmailed into going into a school they didn't want to go to with a coach they didn't like, and it ruined their careers. They never ended up doing anything. They were both pretty good players. So the SEC, huh? I was at the NCAA for about two and a half, almost three years, enough to see what, how, how messed up it is and how hard it is to be in enforcement there. I worked SEC cases quite a bit. I worked all over the place at the NCAA. And, you know, there's things that go on that people have no clue about, and you get a tip of the iceberg when someone big gets caught. That when the stuff that's going on day to day after day, unless it's a big school, people don't care that much about it. So do... Do SEC schools cheat more, and do they cheat more competently? Those are two different things, but the quality and the quantity of the cheating, that's the perception. How close is it to the reality? You know, I don't know that you can say anyone cheats more. Or, you know, sometimes it's just someone, there's, you know, the pack, when there's a Pac-10, I used to process 250 violations a year. So I was about 25 per school. And most of them weren't cheating as much as someone just made a mistake. And what the goal was to try to teach them from it, put a little penalty on it, and then move on and hope they don't do it again. When you get to the bigger stuff, the, the actual real cheating, it takes a concerted effort to do it and get away with it. And so there's not as much as people that's going on, but the, what is going on is very well organized. And so the people who have the most money, I think, are the ones who are, ones are able to do it better. They know how to do it. I, I don't accuse anybody. I have a lot of good friends. Greg Sankey and I are good friends with Commissioner of SEC. So I don't accuse anybody. I just think there are some people that are better than others. Okay, so we're joined right now by uh, former BYU assistant basketball coach Ron Barker, coached uh, under Roger Reed, late 80s, early 90s, and then head of compliance for Pac-12, was there for a couple decades. And you know, because of your time at the NCAA, some of the stuff that happened nationally. So PK and I have been doing the radio show since 2002. And before that, we moved to the market in 92, 93. So we've heard a lot of stuff. And... Stuff that we believe is true, but we can't prove because one angry person leaks it, but you don't have it confirmed by somebody else, and you know there's an agenda, so you got to be super careful. But there's been enough stuff out there, both locally, regionally, and nationally, that we kind of get a feel for what's going on, even if we can't prove any individual specific case. You're writing these books. Are you ever going to write a book about a star athlete who everyone knows, who not only got paid to go to school, but was able to charge as much as 25000 for a home visit because it helped the other schools recruit to say they were in on this star player and a home visit held them recruit other star players who wanted to play with said player. So I'm, everything I'm going to write is going to be fictional based mm-hmm. on real cases. Right. So I'm never going to point the finger and say, hey, who's doing this and, and this is what's happening. Right. That's not my goal. I don't want to do that. I've 20 years lived that. I am writing real cases. This is a real case. I believe this is a real case. I believe that really happened. I, I, when I was at the NCAA, I investigated a case that you can go and read about where the high school coach of the, the player's mom was illiterate and had no dad in the picture. So the high school coach is the one shopping the player around. He charged $5,000 for every visit to a school, and multiple schools took it. And then when he finally sold the guy, sold his own player to a school and took, I think it was $25,000 about a Ford Explorer, the assistant high school coach blew the whistle. 
And I'm sitting in Memphis, Tennessee at midnight talking to this assistant coach, sitting there going, wait, what you're telling me is so incredulous. How can you tell us? How can you're coming forward? And he said, I was supposed to get a car too, and I didn't get one. And that's why he came forward with it. The high school coach eventually got brought up on charges and served jail time. And I believe it was an old statute on the book about slavery and selling a human being. And that's what they got him on. So stuff like that goes on. And that, and that involves some pretty big schools. The school, you know, there's four or five people at the NCAA working on it. And my particular point of it was one school that was paying for the, coach, for the high school coach to bring the kid on a visit. And we're able to do that. You know, just to give you examples of things, my very last case at the NCAA that I was involved with was Rick Majerus. And I told Utah when I came, I said, look, I used to work at BYU. I want to be fair. I want to be on the up and up. And I have no ax to grind. I like Rick Majerus. I thought he was a great coach. And the NCAA couldn't get over to, well, he's living in a hotel. And I said, yeah, he lives in the hotel. So when he takes a kid on a, a dinner, you know, you can take an occasional meal back at the time, and he took a player to dinner at the hotel, that's his home. And the NCAA said, no, that's not permissible. And so they went after him for a whole bunch of stuff, for having pizza at practice and just dumb stuff. And I kept sitting there going, you mean there's all this stuff going on, and we're going after a coach for taking the kid to dinner where he lives at the hotel? And that was the kind of stuff that drove me crazy at the NCAA when there's big, big stuff going on. But the NCAA's got their hands tied. They, you know, there's no subpoena powers. They can't touch, get people to force them to talk to them. They can't lie about what they're doing. You know, it's, it's a, almost a miracle they catch anything at all. Now that name, image, and likeness money is legal, for lack of a better term, can the money essentially be laundered? Money that was being paid to get kids to certain schools and all that, can they now just find a booster, a business to take care of a kid? And so is a lot of what was illegal going to be legal? Well, when they were talking name, image, and likeness, and I was in on the conversations, I would be the only one in the room with the experience of doing enforcement. And I would sit there going, wait a second. So what you're telling me now is if I'm a booster at a big school and have unlimited money, I can tell a high school kid, hey, I'm going to do a T-shirt business for you. You're going to make so much per T-shirts, and we're going to guarantee you're going to sell 100,000 T-shirts. And everyone would go, no, no, you can't do it as part of incentive and recruiting. I'm like, how are you going to catch that? So you basically, to catch a booster could actually do that and, and have agreement with the kid in advance that we're going to give you this amount of money as long as nobody can prove that he had that agreement as a recruiting tool. So, yes, that's going to happen. I, I think it's naive to think it's not going to happen. So are we going to get to the point then that the only schools that get busted are the ones where law enforcement gets involved for one reason or another, and those cases will probably be few and far between? Or you're going to, that's one possibility. You're also going to have cases, which I've had before, where a family feels like what's going on is terrible, so they tape record coaches or play or the boosters telling them things in advance. So if you can get some kind of proof of that, then, then you're able to get that. The case I worked on that I wrote the book on, The Reluctant Players, is it, one of the reasons that we've had tough, a tough time getting is how do you prove that a school is going to hire a coach if he brings players with him? You know, that's almost impossible to prove that in this particular case, there was an ex-wife with an axe to grind who had all of the proof and mailed it to me anonymously, and I got everything shown with the cheating on the test, showing who helped and how they did it. And that's the only way you catch this kind of stuff. Do you think that... I used, to, oh, I used to talk to coaches and say, they'd complain about something, and I'd say, how can I prove that? And they'd say, well, I'm not going to talk on the record. And I said, well, if I don't get you on the record, then how do I prove it? And they'd say... Well, I'll give you advance notice, and we'll film it for you, and we'll send it to you. You know, and, and so that, you know, it takes a coach getting really mad because one of the big problems is coaches don't turn each other in, but then they complain about all the cheating that goes on. 
so it's hard to do that. But yeah, it's going to take either law enforcement or it's going to take somebody that has enough of an axe to grind that they're going to go and tape it themselves or film it themselves. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91, joining us. So in the past, there have been cases where boosters want to hang out with star athletes and take them on trips and vacations, and the NCAA would go after people for that kind of stuff. But under name, image, and likeness, is that all going to be okay now? If you have money and you want to buddy up uh, to some star athlete, is that okay? No, you have to. There has to be some kind of uh, service rendered. That they can't just have. You know, you could. You can get really creative and find ways to do what you want to do. But there has to be. You can't just say, "I want to be a buddy and take this person to wherever Vegas or wherever." You have to say, "We're going to go there and we're going to have an autograph signing show or something of that nature, where this athlete is actually doing something." So, but it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold. Right now, I think everybody's really an alarmist, and there's not going to be that many kids who profit a lot off of it, but every kid that is from a small town can go back and do a summer camp at that town and make a little bit of money. And when, when I started in college athletics, my attitude used to be athletes shouldn't get paid. They're getting college scholarships. I work my butt off to get the same thing they're getting, and they get tutors, and they get, you know, it's, it's really a good deal for the athlete, and they, and they get a degree that is worth how much money the rest of their life. I've completely changed. I'm 180 degrees different because you have coaches making five, six, seven million dollars, commissioners making five million dollars. So why shouldn't the student athletes get their share? I, I've changed in, in that regard over the last 20 years. So give me one more book idea you're working on that you haven't written yet, but you're gonna you're gonna get to it. You got the knowledge. Well, I'm working on my uh, the second one's almost done, and the third one I'm just starting. It's about a. Uh, a school that had a star running back, and he ended up, he was a 19-year-old inner-city kid and had an affair with the head of compliance at the school who was a 30-year-old woman who was very prim and proper. And when I did the interview, the kid kept telling me that she was giving him things, and I said, you know, I talked to her, and I've talked to you. No offense to you, but do you have any kind of proof? And I talked to him several times. I just didn't believe him. He hands me his phone and shows me text messages with the most vulgar things I'd ever read in my life. I'm that 30-year-old head of compliance. And when I confronted her with it, she said, uh, and got up and walked out of the room with her attorney and, and left. Left her job, completely disappeared. In the middle of the case, the star football player got into an altercation at a dance club, totally unrelated, and ended up stabbing and killing somebody who was also a former player at the school. When they called me the next day, it was on Saturday morning, I thought he killed the woman. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this just happened. It just, like it's, makes you feel sick and then I found out it was unrelated still terrible that player obviously no longer plays he's in jail I think I, I don't know if he's on death row or if he just got a lifetime sentence but those are the kind of things that happen you just don't hear about well you stunned Jake and I right there at the end of the interview with that holy cow yeah, the, the, the one you know the, the, the first one I wrote the reason I picked it is because it's just such an easy thing to understand. What this coach did, he's the junior college coach, he said to the two players, you have to take the correspondence class because you can't pass the math class. Then he wore gloves every time he touched paperwork because he had been involved in a violation earlier at another school. He helped him with the test. He went to two tutors for the junior college who were 18-year-old girls who, who had no clue what he was doing, and he went to one and said, these players have to do the even problems. If you'll do the odd problems, he can work, they'll see how you work it out, and they'll be able to do it. And then he went to the other one and said the exact opposite. 
So the girls were doing everything, not knowing it. Then he would take the papers. The players would copy them over in their own handwriting, and then he would turn it in. When he came for the final exam, he had to have a proctor, so he went to the superintendent of state of schools for the state of Mississippi, not in what school that, who was a buddy of his, and said, hey, will you proctor this exam? I'll bring some beer out. We'll watch a game while they take it. And so they sat in the guy's house and copied over a final exam that the coach had had, had the girls do like by covering up when he made it so it didn't say final exam. Then they passed it all. Everything's gone great. And then he goes to the kids and says, hey, so you're going to get exposed. I'm going to tell everyone what you did. It would be such a shame unless you go to school X. And then he got hired there. When this all got proved and I interviewed him, he had been fired by this time. He was getting his law degree, and I interviewed him in the state Supreme Court chambers where he was coaching uh, for the state Supreme Court. So you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just unbelievable, these kind of things that happen. And I think people would be interested in reading going, hmm, this is just an actual real case. This is how it unfolds. You kind of see how the NCA works and some of the limitations. You see when they screw up. And so I'm trying to give a shed light on something that people just don't know much about. Because even when I'm working, when I was working the USC case, I used to read the media reports, and no, it's not the media's fault. They just don't have the, the understanding of how the NCA process works and how, how weird it is. And so I would read things on ESPN and go, man, that's completely wrong with what's happening. But I couldn't talk, and I wasn't going to talk to anybody. So I'm hoping through this to kind of shed a little bit more light so people can read the books and go, oh, oh. And then when you'll see a future case, maybe you won't be so quick to judge or just rush to judgment. Maybe you'll want to hear a little bit more and be able to think a little bit more critically about, okay, here's what I'm reading, but what actually is going on? And, and I think you'll be able to understand things a little bit more clearly. So where can people get these books? The first book's on Amazon. If you type in Ron Barker or The Reluctant Players, it's there. The second one I'm pretty close to having done. I think I can do two a year is what I'm thinking. So I'm hoping to have – I've already laid it out six to eight books, and I can do more than that, but that's just to see if it gets going. Ultimately, I'd like to do get into a TV show like Law & Order Meets the Sports World. When I was at the Pac-12, I got approached twice by TV people. One time it was just someone wanted to do a reality show, and I said, you can't do this in a reality show because – who in the middle of an investigation is going to give up and find the rights away and, and let everyone explode? And that's not going to happen. And then the other time I got flown out by the guy who worked for David Letterman in Worldwide Pants, and they wanted me to, they wanted to talk to me about it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. And they, they loved it, and they thought it was fascinating. And then they said, okay, thanks. And I went, well, why did you fly me out here? And the guy said, well, we only do comedy. And I said, okay, so why am I here? And he said, oh, we had money left in our research budget. We just wanted to talk to you. We think this is fascinating. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just so weird. That guy ended up producing the movie Concussion with, with Will Smith, and he stayed in touch with me. He thinks it's a great idea, and he's trying to sell it around. But, you know, I just, every time he talks to me, I'm like, oh, I don't know how much pull he has in Hollywood. It's not my world. I don't know it. So, but I keep thinking that would be a great TV show. I think that kind of stuff in Hollywood, there's a lot of stuff that's on the back burner and only a small percentage ever gets to the front burner, but you just have to stay in touch with people who have stuff on the back burner because nobody really ever knows what's going to get made. Yeah, and for me, I couldn't talk for 20 years about my job. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of now all of a sudden, I'm, even these interviews, like right now, I'm sitting there going, mm, how much can I say? How much can't I say? And, and I, again, I don't have a bad, bad, evil bone in my body. I don't want to burn people. I don't, it's not my desire to expose people, but I'd like to have people understand the process and hear some interesting stories. I go out and do 
uh, corporate speaking gigs and do motivational talks. And I tell a lot of these stories, and so people are fascinated by it. When I worked for the Pac-12, and then people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I worked for the Pac-12. They either were fascinated and went, whoa, or they'd go, oh, the phone company? So that's the two <laughs> extremes you get, you know, so I never took it that seriously. Well, Ron, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on, and we will uh, we'll have you on again. We appreciate it. Great. I'll be happy to talk to you. If you ever have an NCAA enforcement thing that comes up and you need some source, give me a call. I'm happy to talk to you, but thanks for the time. All right. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91. DJ and PK. Man, there's some jaw-dropping stories right there. He told stories I didn't even know to ask the questions about. Holy cow. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Number one. The Zone Sports Network is Utah's number one choice for sports radio in Utah. From DJ and PK to Hanson Scotty and the Big Show with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott, The Zone continues to dominate the competition. Thank you to all of you that continue to make the Zone Sports Network Utah's highest rated, most listened to sports station. Your home for the best coverage of the teams you're passionate about is right here. 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. The Top 1660 is back in the Zone Sports Network. Listen every day at 1.30 as Hanson Scotty announced another member of the Top 60 players in the state of Utah. As we count you down to the start of the college football season, it's the Top 60 and 60 presented by Cypress Credit Union and Icon Health and Fitness here on the Zone Sports Network. Lloyd just stuck his head in. He just listened to the last segment with Ron Barker. He goes, story time with Ron Barker. He didn't really hold much back, did he? If you were just joining us, Ron Barker was head of the uh, compliance for the Pac-10, he worked for the NCAA, and he told a few stories without naming the schools or the coaches or the players, but just the stories, and you'll want to go to 1280thezone.com and listen to that. And then you're going to want to send a link to three or four of your friends so that they listen to it, because he laid out a few scenarios there that uh, if PK and I told you, you'd think we were making it up. Yach, do we want to take a break right now? All right, Yach says break right now on the other side. A surprise! You're going to like it. Next, stay with us.